Reading for you now, Acts chapter 7, verse 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the proclamation of this word once again. May it be that we would receive these words in any area where we are stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ear, any place in our life where we are resisting the call of the Holy Spirit and not recognizing the proclamation of the righteous one. Help us, Father, to trust only in Christ alone, and therefore also with our hearts love him, obey him, follow him, even unto death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I will be finishing up this uh, particular paragraph, and then next week we'll be going on. Jennifer came to me and she goes, does does Stephen die next week? And I was like, it was like a very grim way to ask me where I was going to be in next week's sermon. Yes, Stephen will will die next week. Um, We will finish this portion of his of his uh, sermon. Uh, some even say that it was a speech. Uh, it definitely was a sermon uh, going through the Old Testament. And some of you may be like, wow, you've spent a lot of time on this particular sermon. But I think that it had so much in it. And I believe that these words that he uses, even these names that he called, and now today focusing more so on this concept of being uncircumcised of heart, being uncircumcised of ear, it's not normal language for us. And so it would be easy for us just to say, yeah, I think I got the general gist of that and let's move on. But Stephen was very purposeful, even in this particular proclamation of the names that he was calling them and the proclamation of the accusation that he was giving them, that it would not do justice just to go through. It would be good to go back and to see where he's going with that because once again, he is continuing to interweave in this admonition to the scribes and the priests tremendous amount of grace of what God's promises is to be proclaimed as, and that they should receive and and should be glad to have received. And I think he is very hopeful that in this particular preaching of God's word that they would repent and turn away. But at least it would be a warning, a warning to them that any place that we see here, these particular things in the Old Testament, they came both with the promises of grace but also the promises of just judgment whenever there was not the response to this word with a broken heart and being circumcised of heart and ear. Here we can go back and I'm going to be going through and basically the question is going to be, what does it mean to be circumcised of heart? Do we want to be circumcised of heart? Did you come here today asking God to continue to do this work in your own heart? I was told by a member last week, and I could tell even in this person's countenance as he was listening to the sermon, that he came prayerfully asking God to rebuke him. 
and to, to receive the word, knowing that it was going to be a rebuke passage. And I tell you, during the whole sermon, this person had the most joyful face of anyone that I saw as I looked out into the congregation. Now, I tend to look down more than I sometimes look up, but I thought, that's amazing. And then he would tell me that, that he actually came asking God, God, rebuke me. Circumcise my heart and my ears. Bring me to a place where knowing that this passage is going to be an uncomfortable passage, that it would be a restoration passage for my heart. And I believe the Lord answered his prayer, at least from what he responded to me as afterward. And he welcomely received that rebuke. I remember, again, I mentioned earlier, I think in prayer sometime, about being a part of a marriage conference this, this week. And I did not intend for to go in there. With, I wasn't prayerful. But the rebuke that I received was such a refreshment. And Jennifer and I both were thinking we are failing each other. And it was such a restoration of conversation to be able to have my spouse not saying, you know, I'm glad that he was preaching to you about that and that, that this affected you like it did because you really needed to hear this. And she wasn't like <laughs> looking at me like that. That she was looking at me thinking, I need to repent to him. And I was actually writing a note to her saying, I am sorry. Even this morning, this morning, I judged her wrongly before going to that conference. And he he nailed it on the head of how I declare her motives instead of asking her and walking with her and discipling with her. I just went ahead and declared what I assumed was in our heart. And I was rebuked for that. And it was such a welcoming thing for our relationship. This is what this is about. This proclamation is to bring us to the Lord, to bring us closer to his people and to the promises that he's proclaimed. We see in Jeremiah chapter 6, when God is proclaiming the judgments that he is going to bring on his people, he says, to whom shall I speak? And give warning that they may hear. Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. It is obvious from what we can read here. And as long as we've been here, we know the end of the story. Stephen's going to die next week. Because they did not receive this as an object of blessing and mercy. They saw it as scorn and they took no pleasure in it. But that's not the only part of the story. There was the opportunity for there to be restoration. There was the potential beauty that could have been there in a reformation of the heart of the people by loving, truly loving the rebuke of the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, and if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to go with me on this. Verses 12 through 22, Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'm going to be spending a lot of time in the scriptures today trying to just draw out more about what this means in this idea of being circumcised of heart and ear uh, to be set apart to the Lord in our hearts. I'm going to read now verses 12. And on it says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Very similar to what we had read this morning in the proclamation of the gospel. It says, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, 
Now, if we look at this, this is the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus gave when he first began his ministry. What did Jesus say when he began his public ministry? He started with, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Here we have, what does the requ- God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to repent of the sins of how your unrighteousness is in contrast to the righteous one, that your unholiness does not match up to the holiness of God, to be in fear of that and to be in fear of his judgments because of your sin. Repent. Be in fear of the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways, to have faith and to trust his ways, to trust his word, to trust his power, to trust in his righteousness. It is his righteousness Because remember, we've already got to the fear part and the repent part. We know it's not our righteousness. We know that there's nothing that we can bring, as the proclamation of the call to worship said this morning, there's no gift that we can truly bring God that would account for to us any personal righteousness. And then it says, to love him, to serve the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. That as this occurs in the proclamation of the gospel, as we repent of our sins and we begin to trust him, something occurs. God is working us through in the process of that salvation that as we begin to trust him and we begin to see the contrast of trusting him instead of ourselves, we begin To love him. One, that he would be merciful enough to even call us to that place before him. And then when we are now in love with his righteousness, love with his mercy, love with his holiness, it transforms us to desire to serve the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And what is that going to look like? It's going to look like and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for what? What does it say? For what reason? Just seeing if anybody's reading along with me. For your good. So one of the things that we need to stop and think about once again, and I bring this up often, but the scribes and the priests, God is not coming after them because they were obeying his statutes. You know, a lot of times when we think, well, they were legalistic, we're like, well, they were too focused on the law. It wasn't because the scribes and the Pharisees were just so caught up in doing the commandments. No, they were adding to the commandments, they were twisting the commandments, and they were proclaiming in their calling to the other people in their role of being a shepherd that they would, people would have to, by their works... In their obedience, get the approval of God. Instead of telling them it's not possible for us to be able to do this, the only way that we can live in obedience to God is to be transformed and have our hearts circumcised. It's not that the Old Testament was teaching all about works and law, and then all of a sudden Jesus came and said, hey, I'm going to bring this new idea about love. And then it's going to change everything. You need to forget everything that's in the Old Testament. And now listen to me about love. God's been about love and having our hearts circumcised from the very beginning. 
Not because he's wanting just to have these robots obeying everything that he says. It's for our good. Again, this is the gospel being proclaimed early on. I've lost my place. 14. 14, thank you. (laughs) Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that's in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and who takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name... You should swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great things and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the heaven. And they're mixed with this continual call, this covenant call from God, declaring to them, you have been, you are his people. He chose you. He chose you to receive this law. He chose you to receive this grace. He chose you to receive this love. He loved you first. Therefore, separate, set apart in your heart, your life, For the service of him. He loves you. Love him. He set you apart. Now set apart in your heart. And in your service. Your life to him. Be circumcised therefore. Of heart. And no longer be stubborn. I'm going to reference again. As we see all of these proclamations. And it ties into Acts 2. Keep noticing that he is promising this. For them and their offspring. I mentioned earlier the quote from. Well, I, I think I did finish. <laughs> I mentioned earlier the quote from Martin Luther. My conscience is held captive by the word of God. To act against conscience is neither right nor safe. I would think that a lot of people, when I've heard them quote that, and, and it's. I don't hear it that much, so it's not like I go around everybody saying this all the time. But I've heard people that often like to say the part and to act against conscience is either right or safe, that, I'm, that I can't do this in conscience, that there's something wrong with this or I'm going to have to object or protest in conscience. And I don't hear as often the first part of my conscience being held captive by the word of God. But it's important for us to remember that our hearts are deceptive and we need to not confuse what our heart in its fleshliness and it's still having the remnants of sin in our life versus what God is doing to our hearts. What our hearts will say will be deceiving. It will be embracing what is wrong. You have to remember this, is, this proclamation was given to God's people. They had the law put before them and then they started twisting it 
in mixing what they said was God's law with their own hearts, thinkings, what they thought was right in their own minds, and then they reshaped it into something that was in total opposition to who God is. So the right understanding of God's word is essential, not just taking bits and pieces like Satan does to proclaim a lie and a deception. Martin Luther said that my conscience has been held captive by the word of God. It wasn't as if it was not there even in the church of that day, but it was confused so much that it was in a language that most people could not even understand. And so they would proclaim the word in Latin, and then they would tell the people what to do as their hearts desired. The same thing that the scribes and the priests were doing here. And the same thing that we do in our own lives. Whenever we desire to use God's word as an affirmation for our own desires. So let us be praying that we would not confuse what is just from our heart separated from God, but we want to, to know what is truly God's word. It's interesting, I'm going to come into a, a passage here in James. If, if you have your Bibles, you can turn quickly to James chapter 2. Martin Luther had spoken out early on that he had a hard time with James 2. And it's important that when you think about the Reformation, and you get, there's a lot of things that when we celebrate the Reformation, um, we, we tend to want to go back and, you know, we, we have, on one end we have fun by, uh, you know, some people dress up, you know, like the characters of that day, and they do reenactments of the Nelly and the 95 Theses. And, and sometimes we feel like, you know, that was, a, that was such a rich time. We need to go back and, and be there. And in a sense, that's good, because we do want to go back to the, to the foundation, to the, the fundamentals of God's word. We also have to remember that they, they were in a particular time and place. And they were being reactive to the abuses of the church of that day. And so, you know, one example is because of all of the icons and all of the things that they were doing inside of the buildings, a lot of the reformers, they said, you know what, we need to have nothing pretty <laughs> in our buildings. It needs to be sterile. You know, let's, let's just make white walls and make things as basic as possible. And you have to be gracious to them because they had been given so much bad thinking for so long and people had used the imagery and the icons to actually be idolatrous toward God that they wanted to remove themselves so far away from that that some of them went too far. Even in their reactions to how they would respond to people that would proclaim things that we can truly see to be heretical. They, they're humans. Luther, when he looked at the book of James, and he looked at how James would talk a lot about works being intermixed with faith, he was hearing that and reading that in light of what he was being taught by the early church, where they were spending so much time talking about the works of man bringing some sort of favor from God. So when he read James, he reacted to it. And he didn't even for a while, he said, you know, I don't even know if that belongs in the canon of God's scriptures. Now he changed in time and embraced the book of James, and therefore we don't have to read this thinking that he was opposed to it. But listen to what James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17 says. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, it does, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, it's interesting that, again, I think that at that time, Luther was having a, you know, he was trying to work things out in his mind. And, and I think we're in the same kind of place. I think sometimes we have a hard time. You know, when we read this, we go, okay, well, we're, is, he, is James here saying that we're somehow or another, we're getting favor from God, that our faith has to be mixed with works to be able to get the righteousness of God? Well, I think that what the analogy that we have here or the example that we have here. I think we're probably, even in the modern church, still not reading this correctly. It says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? A lot of us use that particular passage and say, well, if you're Christians and you're going to be proclaiming the gospel, then you need to be helping the poor. And I'm not saying that that's not an indication of what's being taught here. But what it's actually saying, I believe, from the more that I read this, it says if a brother and sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, that and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for your body, what good is that? We need to be thinking about God feeding us. That if he is going to say, okay, now, now that you have faith, go out with your faith and, and, and live your life. Sin no more, but he doesn't actually give us food, then we can't be transformed. We're not going to be able to live. We're not going to be able to function. And so what is actually being said here that when God, if he's giving us faith, if we have come to faith in Christ, he is also going to fill us with something that's going to sustain us so that we may have life. And what he fills us with is his word. His word and his spirit. He does not just say, go and believe and sin no more. He fills us and disciples us and nourishes us, brings us together, calls us to come and proclaim the word, calls us together and to take the sacraments, things that we can hold on to, things that we can see. And he feeds us and he tells us that that should show a reaction of life. That food is going to be sustenance in our life. And there's going to be transformation. It's going to be the work that is matched with the faith. It is going to be alive in us. It's going to be shown in obedience. And that is what Luther is saying here when they told, and they, they told him. They said, you need to recant these things that you've written. And he's saying, I can't. I am bound to the word of God. I have been fed the word of God. I have been given the riches of God's word, and I want to give it to other people. I've been fed this food, and I've now been made alive. I can't act against conscience. It's like separating his soul from his body. He can't be anything but acting out in obedience to God because his conscience, his soul, is now captive to the very word of God. Moving on. Turning to Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'll give you a chance to turn there, starting in verse 1 in a few minutes. This could be very difficult to hear, even this particular proclamation. Even though we hear all about this grace that God has given us with this faith and how he feeds us with the food of the word, we might be, you might be saying to yourself, 
I'm in the Word. I've read the Bible. I've had a lot of people say, you know, I've read the Bible front and back. You know, I read all the time, and it's just not helping me. It's not helping me change. I'm still stuck in this sin. I'm still not following in obedience. And it could be very disheartening. It's like, I don't know how to get into my heart. You know, we look at the proclamation there in Deuteronomy 10, and it says, in a, a declarative state, you need to circumcise your heart. And you're like, well, how am I going to do that? I, I can't. I've tried. I put myself before the Word of God, and I can't. Cannot, can, can we turn the heat down? Or can we turn it off? <laughs> is it? Is it? Are y'all, are y'all hot in here? A little bit, yeah. yeah I, I'm just like, I don't know if I'll make it without passing out. <laughs> we don't turn it down a little bit. I, I can transition a little bit more to hell preaching if we need to. If it, it's helpful, but it's a little warm. But Deuteronomy 30, which follows up Deuteronomy 10, is a very hopeful, still, the gospel being proclaimed. Knowing that we cannot do this, even with all of our abilities, it's a reminder to us that we cannot even by reading our word or reading the, our Bibles, reading the word of God, coming to church all the time, we, that those actions are not going to transform our hearts. Deuteronomy, though, teaches us what's going to happen by the promises of God. It says in verse 1, it says, When all of these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse. Now, this is under the assumption that you're still stuck in your sin. Just like Israel continued to be stuck in their sin. They'd be given the law and they would end up rejecting the law. They said, yes, we're going to do everything you said you're going to do. And then just within moments later, they've made the golden calf. They're in this continual cycle. Well, look at what God says he's going to do. He says, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God. You and your children obey his voice in all that I command you this day, with all of your heart and with all of your soul, then the Lord God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. That you may live. And that the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecute you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you this day. Keep going back to the word. Keep going back. Yes, you can't do it. God's going to be doing the work, but he's saying keep turning back to the Lord. If you're in this state of mind where you're like, I'm continuing to sin time and time again, it's not working, don't stop. Keep going. We see this in examples from Israel, particularly continuing to falter, but he keeps saying, return, come back to me. I will circumcise your heart in the heart of your offspring. That is the hope that we have for those who embrace covenant theology to baptize their children. The baptism is not going to transform the hearts. 
We're just trying to obey God and say, God, transform our hearts. Transform the hearts of our children and keep going back to the word of God. Don't listen to Satan when he tells you, you know what, it didn't work. You've been reading the Bible, you've been going to church, you've been baptizing people. You know what, let's try something else. Let's go with another thing that that might give the appearance of working, that might give the appearance of having some kind of an effect in their life. Keep going back. God is the one who promises that he will transform you. Keep going to church. You're like, you know what, he's just going to be preaching about sin, and I'm kind of tired of it. I need to be encouraged. Well, think about Proverbs 27, 5 through 7. It says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. One who is full, of, one who is full loathes honey, but to the one who is hungry, everything, is, everything bitter is sweet. Are you hungry enough to go to the Lord who will fill you with the honey? Are you hungry Keep going, even for the rebuke. And that's a hard thing. But I tell you, brother and sister, it's the only place to be restored and to be filled is to go before the Lord and to welcome rebuke, even if it's not just rebuke from the preaching, but maybe the rebuke that you hear from your brothers and sisters who may point you back to God's word. Just hearing about a ministry that is dismantling, and it was from a guy that I used to think very very highly of, and, I, and I, I have to admit to you that I had envy. <laughs> He's a very personable guy and very charismatic, and, and people were drawn to him. And I'm just like, you know, I don't have that. You know, I wish I had that. You know, I wish I had that kind of personality. And you know, my personality probably just rubs people the wrong way. This guy can just draw people. Well, he eventually started pushing people out of his life that was giving him rebuke. And he was isolating himself because he thought it was slowing him down in his ministry. And now the ministry is being destroyed. And he's not even seeing the things that he once proclaimed to be the hopeful rebuke of the Lord. If you're being rebuked by people in your life or by the word of God, the things that are rooted in the word of God, welcome it. It's painful. It's painful. There's some of you here who will rebuke me here and there. And I tell you, it's painful. Like, I, I have to transition for a bit. They'll say something to me, and I'm just like, oh, man, I just want to come back. But I have, no, hold on. And I tell you, it's those things that are so sweet when they get deep down in my heart. And then God, through his Holy Spirit, takes that truth that is based upon the word, regardless of the people that told me, regardless of the circumstances that may have come, if it's truth and if it's based on the word and as it gets into my heart and as the Holy Spirit comes alongside of it, it transforms me and then I can welcome it. And then I feel renewed and then I feel the good that comes from being rebuked in the Lord from his word. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, it says, And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I reference that chapter over and over again. It is the doorway into the gift of the Holy Spirit. The forgiveness of our sins. Welcome the rebuke of the word of the Lord. Long for it. 
Demand it. Demand that the ministers of God stick to the word of God. Children, don't demand a lot of things from your parents when they're doing things, but if they're not teaching something that you see is from the word of God, say, Mom, Dad, is that, is that from the Bible? Wives, the same. When your husbands, if they're making declarations that are not consistent with that, like judging one another in a harsh way, <laughs> out of irritation, doesn't matter if the rebuke is accurate to the word, it's not our place to go in certain ways and to be in a certain posture with that rebuke. The word of God tells us to rebuke one another in gentleness and in patience, remembering our own place before the Lord. When we do any kind of rebuke outside of that, we are crossing the lines and are no longer being contained in the word of God. Jeremiah 4 calls again and says, If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. We need to continue to keep turning back to the Word. We need to keep asking God to reform our churches, continuing to ask Him, as it says in verse 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it. Because the evil of your deeds. It is our only hope. It is our only rescue is to keep coming back to the word of God. Tuesday is election day. Many of us are very hopeful that it will stop the bleed is all we can really look at it as. It's not going to transform the state of Virginia into some kind of godly state. But we're really hoping that it will stop the, the tyrannical bleed that we have in our state. But I'm not very hopeful overall, regardless if it could be a landslide for Yunkin this week. Because I don't know if the churches, if the pulpits and the people of God have circumcised hearts for the law of God. That they are in obedience to wanting to, to immerse themselves amongst the rebuke of the Lord. That is how the state of Virginia was established were by people who were of that nature at one time, and therefore a birth, what comes from that, the action that came forth, the obedience that came forth from that, was a people trying to submit themselves unto the king of all kings instead of a king of another nation. There is no hope for us unless that is our primary prayer. If we are upset about the deficits and the the debt that we're leaving our next generation, if we're upset about the moral decay that we are passing down to our children, but we are not praying earnestly for our children, praying for our churches, and we are not teaching everything that the Lord has given us to teach according to the word. If you're not diligently trying to get the word of God into the next generation, then you are a part of the problem. You might as well say, I'm going to embrace all of this debt. I'm going to, I'm glad, I'm glad I'm giving them that. Because I tell you, the debt that they receive and the moral decay that they will have in their culture will not be anything like the eternal hell that will be put upon the next generations that are absent from the law of God. Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, 
though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother saying, no, the Lord, for they shall all know me for the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. All of this that I am telling you today, no matter how hard I preach, no matter how much I push it, I can say, keep reading your Bible, keep going back to the word of the Lord. It's not empowered even by your turning to the Lord. There's still no hope in that. They will keep being like Israel and they will continue to fail. It says that God is going to do something in Jeremiah that will establish that law in their hearts. And what is it that he's going to do? I didn't schedule to finish this sermon with the very passage that we read today in Hebrews. But it is exactly the same passage you've already heard. It says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation... He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. The securing, get this, the securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, do what? Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The reason why I can preach this with all confidence that it has any kind of effect, that I have no confidence in my ability to preach, I have no confidence in your ability to obey. We're hopeless if those are the two things we're left with. But God has said that through the power of the preaching of the word and through the turning of the people, that the power of Jesus Christ will be proclaimed for his glory by the transformation of the hearts. It is the power of God in Jesus Christ that any of this has any hope. It is because of his blood that everything that the Old Testament people were striving in in the tent with all of the blood of the sacrifices and everything that we're doing here today has any hope is because there's power in the blood of Jesus Christ to purify our conscience, to circumcise our hearts and our ears. And what does it do? It purifies our conscience from dead works. To do what? To serve the living God. I skipped a story And I don't want to miss it. And I'll end with this. I usually like to end with something like that. And I've told my wife this story, so I think she'll think it's okay for me to go on. She's like, this is probably where you should stop. You're right. You're in a good amount of time. This is a good story. It's Reformation Day. Have any of you ever heard of David Stratton? One of the reformers. A Scottish reformer, David Stratton. Well, good. I was kind of hoping that none of you did. He's not a a reformer that a lot of people have heard about, but he... um, he is a known, John Knox knew who he was. Early on in his life, David Stratton 
was uh, an heir of a farm and fishing business from his parents. He had wealthy parents there in Scotland. They had a a big estate, and they actually gave him an inheritance of an estate right next to them. And and he really succeeded well in salmon fishing and became very wealthy. And the church at that time, this is in the early 1500s, the church at that time, they were not doing a very good job. Obviously, that's why we need the Reformation at that time. And they were greedy. And back then, you know, you would do, they would, they would require 10% to be given amongst those. And everybody's a member of the church. You know, you, that's the way the communities were at that time. Everybody was a part of the church in some way. And they would send vicars out to, to get 10% of whatever people were providing. And most people were farmers or they had plants and they had animals. And so they would take that. If you go to Scotland today, you will actually see barns near the church buildings where they used to be storehouses of that, what they would call tines. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but that was what they would use, and it meant tenth. It meant the tenth from the people. Well, people who actually had money were much more attractive to the church because you didn't have to deal with all of the stuff that comes with animals and vegetables. You can get their money. Well, David Stratton had money because he was a successful fisherman, and he was an heir of successful fishermen and farmers. And so he had money, but he wasn't a religious man. He was not involved in the church, and he didn't care about the church, but he was very successful at fishing. And so they came to him, and they said, you need to give us 10% of your money. And he's like, What's, uh, you're, who are you? <laughs> Forget that. And so he shrugged them off. Well, the church decided to excommunicate him. He was like... What's the church to me? I don't care about excommunication. So, so what? I'm not giving you my money. Well, then they called him a heretic. And he's like, what? They accused him of heresy. Because that was the very popular thing then. Because during the time in the, 18, in the 1520s and the 1530s, there was a thing going on called the Reformation. And it was a thing they like to throw at people and say, well, you're a heretic, and we're going to put that as a charge against you also. And so when he got the charge of heresy, he was like, what is this all about? So he had a nephew, and he had a neighbor who were, in his what he knew of was Protestants that were being a part of the Reformation, that were of the conviction that the church needed to change. And so he goes to his nephew, and he goes to his neighbor, and says, what's all the fuss about, about heresy? I hear you all are heretics, and now I'm a heretic too. So what's this all about? And they started teaching him the word of God. He was illiterate, successful fisherman, but he didn't know how to read. Most people didn't have a copy of the Bible back then. They actually had a copy of the English Bible, a new English, and they read and were able to translate to him the word of God. You know what happened? He became a Christian. And he became a heretic in the eyes of the church. Well, they still wanted his money, and his trial was coming up. And so when he was at the trial, they thought they would throw a question. They thought they would throw some questions at him that probably were pretty easy for someone who was irreligious. They said, do you believe in purgatory? And he said, no. And they said, well, do you believe that Christ's blood is sufficient to atone for your sins? He could have easily just said, no, paid him some money, and went on. But the word of God had bound his conscience. He had become a fisherman 
for Jesus Christ. And he said, yes, Jesus' blood is sufficient to atone for my sins. So they took him up on a hill between Edinburgh and the, um, what was the name of it, the, the, the ports of Leith, where all of the fishermen villages could see when they lit him on fire. And they killed him. Because he was bound by the word of God, they killed him. But all of those villages saw that fire. And they began to be converted to Christianity in the true hearing of God's word. There was nothing in David Stratton that had any power of himself. There was nothing in his nephew and in his neighbor. But it was the power of the word of God that transformed him and transformed that area and transformed Scotland for a season. Unfortunately, they have turned away. And unfortunately, we are turning away and we have turned away to our nation. So may it be that we would remember that Christ's blood is sufficient. It is the power of Jesus' blood proclaimed in his gospel that will transform us. There is power in this table. We don't do this because it's just a way to get a little bit of wine and a little bit of bread or some grape juice. We trust that God will do his work in transforming our hearts by being obedient to the King of Kings. Let us pray.